Blog Talk Radio. What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Chronicles of She. I'm Taylor Kathy, and tonight we are on Episode 3 of Vindicated Voices, Part 2, with special guest Heather Patterson. Before we get started, I would like to let everyone know who hasn't heard the news yet, but Empire star Jesse Smollett was a victim of a racially motivated and homophobic attack today. We don't know the details of what happened to him yet, well, at least that I don't know yet, but I will be reporting on this tomorrow, but... For those of you who know about this, please send your prayers to Jesse. To Jesse, He is a truly great actor and person, and I love me some Jesse on Empire. And this should not be taken lightly, and I hope he gets the justice that he deserves. Stand tall. Tonight, we have special guests. Heather Patterson on the line to talk to us. Heather is an Army veteran who deployed to Afghanistan with 101 First Airborne. Upon leaving the military, she went to school for psychology where she studied how PTSD impacts military personnel. She has spoken publicly about her experiences as the survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault, as well as volunteering with her local sexual assault response team. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where she works as a trainer and quality control team lead. She writes on Tumblr as SPC Snap Tags, where you can find her having loud opinions about the military, feminism, and what was like being a woman completely surrounded by men in the military. Sounds like our kind of guest. Well, oh, we got her on the line right now. Everyone, please welcome Miss Heather Patterson. Hello. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. No problem. We're glad to have you. Welcome to the Chronicles of She. I'm really excited about this. I'm really and it's good to finally uh, get to speak to you, fa- uh, not face-to-face exactly, but over the phone, I guess. <laughs> I know. It is so amazing. Well, we're glad to have you on. And, wow, you have quite the story to tell us tonight. <laughs> okay. So it's been pretty tell- interesting, yeah. Yeah. Here, go ahead. Uh, Where do you want me to start? Do you want me to just start where it started, uh, when I met my husband and how I ended up in the Army? Yes, go right ahead. Yes, tell us. Okay. So when I was 17, I met the first man who was going to abuse me. He was – and, you know, I was 17. I was smart. I was bored. I was the exact kind of person he was looking for. He was Mm -hmm. 10 years older than me, and he only ever dated teenagers because they were the only people who didn't know how to defend themselves. So we started this relationship, and I was just in love with him because my parents were not pleased about it for some reason, mysterious. And when I graduated from high school, I moved down to Pensacola, Florida to be with him. And we were living in just a really rough area, and I didn't want to stay there, but I also didn't want to move in with my parents. So he started Mm -hmm. with the army's so great. It's going to be, you know, because he'd been in the army way back in the day, back before there was all the war going on. And at some point it was like, all right, I can't be where I am. Have to go somewhere else. Joined up, realized it was a decision. And then, uh, let's see. I, I had been in the army for exactly a year when I was on the flight to my to Afghanistan for my first deployment. So that was mm-hmm. fun. When I was in the Army, I worked on Kiowa helicopters, which are smaller reconnaissance helicopters that have since been retired. And the Army is just a real, real weird place if you're a woman. Uh, 
because it's the way that men talk to each other when you're not around, but they're just open about it. It was super stressful. Mm. Now, while this is happening, my relationship with my husband had been getting worse and worse and worse, but I didn't really, it didn't, it wasn't in a way that made sense to me. You know, my parents have a pretty decent relationship. They fight sometimes that they come together, but I would bring up super reasonable things like, Hey, I'm working and you're not, can you do the laundry? And then we'd have these weird, complicated arguments where I was apologizing for some reason. Um, He started making it really clear that he didn't care about whether I wanted to have sex with him or not. He never would hit me or anything like that. What he liked to do Mm -hmm. was these really just long, sad rants about how nobody loves him and every girl he's ever been has cheated on him. And like low key, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. That was fun. Mm. And I was so unprepared for that. I had never been in a situation where somebody was using me like that. So I thought, Mm -hmm there was something wrong with me. And it's not just that the classic thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so things get worse and worse and worse. We're always overdrafted because, you know, how do you control somebody if you don't control their money? Fighting mm-hmm. all the time. He's managed to separate me from my parents at this point. Um, Afghanistan did not improve the situation. He wanted me to call him three times a day while I was in a war zone. And my squad mates were like, don't do that. That's crazy. And when I said, hey, I'll call you a couple times a week, he called my mom and spun this sob story about he was just so afraid for me and I never call him and what is he going to do? And he's reading all these terrible newspaper articles, which of course was garbage. So then I had to talk to my mom when she was panicking and it, it was overwhelming. You know, I'm 20 years old in a war zone, do not like it even a little bit. And the person who's supposed to have my back is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But the weird part is as stressful as the deployment was, and it was very stressful. It was the thing that saved me from the abusive relationship because he couldn't control me. I was 7,000 miles away. He could spend my money. He could make me feel bad, but he couldn't make me come home. He couldn't make me call him. He couldn't call me. So there was this freedom there, even in this, otherwise terrible situation and it it really is something when your squad mates who have done deployments before come to you and say hey you're really stressed out like more stressed out than we would expect from afghanistan it makes you think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're basically i went home on r and r yep sorry go ahead mm-hmm. You you were basically, though you were having a hard time within the Army, it was also like your safe haven away from home. Yeah, it it was a very complicated feeling. Because Mm -hmm. at the same time, I just lost a really, somebody that I really admired. He had died in a helicopter accident. Because I was female, um, there had been rumors started that I had an affair with my technical inspector. And the Army will absolutely punish you for infidelity. So I couldn't speak to somebody who was Mm -hmm. a very close friend, but also who I needed to speak to to do my job. Then there were all the, uh, I really did appreciate all the like jokes, kind of Schrodinger's asshole kind of thing where Mm -hmm. uh, they were definitely threatening to rape me. But then when I'm like, maybe don't do that. Well, why don't you have a sense of humor? I don't know. Oh my God. Maybe because that was a threat. Yeah, it's very Uh, stressful. There's so much gaslighting in the Army when you're female. Dudes will hit on you, which, you know, that's fine. 
but then when mm-hmm. I turned them down, they would lash out at me. They, they gaslight me and pretend they had never hit on me or they never cared about that. Or they'd lash out and start spreading rumors about me. And the rumors really impacted my life a lot. Like I said, I lost a very close friend to the rumor mill at the same time that I lost a close friend to a, to, you know, a downed aircraft. Mm. <laughs> That's always the thing that shocks people when I tell this story. Because I, I think people understand that war is pretty, pretty rough. But when I say... Mm-hmm you know, I didn't feel safe around the people that I have to trust. That's where people get really upset on my behalf. And these are the people who want to protect our country, but they're doing the exact opposite. Oh my, I, I have heard stories about women being sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. in the military and being harassed. There was one woman, her name was, um, I think her name is Lavina. She was murdered Mm -hmm. on the base and it was covered up as a suicide and oh, yeah. she was sexually assaulted, and the army completely covered it up. And mm-hmm. it really is baffling, like how we can sweep that under the rug when it comes to women. It's like we're not important enough to basically be protected. And well, the army is also just... was also sweeping male victims of sexual assault under the rug as well. Oh, so women definitely mm-hmm. have it way worse that in too. a lot of yeah. ways, but. There was, and you know, I never can figure out why. Is it because the army is a bureaucracy? Is it because of all the toxic masculinity? Is it because change is hard? I never, I never did really figure out an answer. But it's like, okay, so you were victimized and this is really bad. So we're just going to ignore it. One of the things that scared me the most when I was in the army, and I don't know if the army has changed its policy since I left in 2011, but mm-hmm. I would have had to go through my chain of command if I wanted to make a formal rape complaint. And I'm sure you can see the problems with that setup. I'm getting a good, I'm getting a clear picture. Yeah. Yeah. What if it's my sergeant who raped me, who's probably closer <gasps> to the platoon sergeant than me? You know, what if it was my platoon sergeant or my first sergeant or my commander? Who am I supposed to talk to? the battalion commander, the brigade commander, who are all much closer, you know, just because of work-related reasons than I am to any of them. Mm-hmm. And the way that my friends, well, I won't call them friends per se, let's call them uh, friends of proximity. The way my friends would talk about it is they believe so strong in a world where women are liars and there's something that we benefit from by making a rape claim, but they won't oh, accept that maybe men are rapists sometimes, you know, it's always about, Oh, Mm -hmm. she just wanted to ruin his career. And I'm like, you do not understand how brave it was that she tried at all. And I can't explain it to you because you don't care. Exactly. Exactly. That was, so that that was was two fun things. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. the deployment would have been rough without my husband. My then husband would have been rough without the deployment, but the two together were brutal. It was a very Uh, difficult year. Can you tell me about the first incident with, um, with the harassment on base? Oh man. So we're going to have to backtrack a little bit before the deployment. I was in a very small okay. MOS. There were only, uh, sorry, military occupational specialty, my job. There were only about 500 of us total in the army. 
So when I went to AIT, there were only six of us. Sorry. You go to basic training where you learn how to be a soldier, and then you go to AIT where you learn how to do your job. So please mm-hmm. interrupt me if I'm not making all of the everything clear enough. Sometimes I forget what other people don't know about the Army. <laughs> oh, oh, sure, definitely. Definitely. Go right ahead. So my class in AIT was only six of us, and we were there for a long time. So we, I mean, we knew each other really, really well, and that's when the first dedicated harassment started. One of my squad mates, uh, classmates, just, he had it out for me. And he finally admitted to me much later on that it's because he wanted to sleep with me and I rejected him because I was married. <laughs> and he just, mm-hmm. the, the campaign just started from the time we were in training together to the time we both left the Army. It was, he loved spreading rumors about me. He sexually harassed me, like, as much as a human can possibly do that. And all of that was bad enough, but then I brought it up to the drill sergeants. And at this point, we had been fighting pretty severely. It was becoming Mm -hmm. pretty untenable, so it would have been super nice if somebody had done something about that. But by the time I brought a formal complaint up to my drill sergeants, they told me under no uncertain terms that I needed to just stop or everybody was getting in trouble. And that's a really rough lesson to learn when you are 19, yeah. Mm-hmm. And from there, it just what, was, mm-hmm. okay, so this is how the world is. This is what I can expect out of this environment, that there's no one I can trust, that there's no one who will have my back, and that if something bad happens to me and something bad will definitely happen to me, I'm alone. And you're not supposed to feel that way in the Army. Mm-hmm. So let's see, where was I? Oh, okay. So my first deployment, I did a lot of thinking. I actually kept a journal every single day and I didn't really think too much about it, but I would go back and reread and see even in really coded language, how miserable I had been and how my unhappiness was correlated really strongly with how frequently I had to deal with my then husband. And then right before I came home on R&R, I looked in our bank account and it's like, So I got a $10,000 bonus, and also I've been in Afghanistan for six months, so I'm super curious why there's $300 in our bank account. Wow. And that was it. That was the final thing. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. What the? Okay, yeah. Tell me what he he spent. Yeah. Honestly, I don't even know. It's pretty unclear to me. He was definitely spending part of it on MMOs. He was really big into EVE Online. That was the thing at the time. Um, he was oh, living with his mom yeah. and some of his siblings who were not, not really reliably employed. And the thing is, I don't mind helping, but I would have liked to know that my paycheck was floating all of the family. So it probably went into that. He had no impulse control. Honestly, it could have been anything. But, oh, you know, the money was gone. Gosh. What was I going to do? And that was just uh-huh. it. That was the culmination of every single fight that we had where he wouldn't get a job, where he wouldn't have a reasonable conversation where I couldn't trust him, where I was so miserable all the time, where I dreaded speaking to him and I dreaded coming home. And finally, that was it. I cannot do this anymore. There's nothing I can do to fix this. I don't know for sure that I would have ever had that moment, certainly not soon enough, if I hadn't been 7,000 miles away from him. 
So that's mm-hmm. a weird thing. And from there, I came home on R&R. I found a lawyer. We started the divorce proceedings. He threw a tantrum. Of course he did. He, um, he called the chain of command back in the States and told them I was still talking to my technical inspector who was on a base that was a four-hour flight away from me. And then, of course, I had to talk to my first sergeant. It's like, I don't know how you think I'm having an affair with this guy. He's nowhere near, near me and hasn't been for months, but cool. But at some point, he realized that there just wasn't a lot he could do. Not that he didn't try. That is the most hilarious lies I've ever seen in my life. He told my (laughs) lawyer that my signature wasn't valid because it didn't look like my signature from when I had just gotten married. Like, yeah, I've been married for a while now. I'm used to the new last name. (laughs) Right? Honestly, it's kind of amazing. Oh, my God. Right? A signature. Yeah. (laughs) As if I didn't meet my lawyer in person. Right? Right? Really, what he was trying to do is just get control. Because Kentucky, where I was filing for divorce, is a no-fault divorce state. So there's nothing he could make me do to stay. And since he knew I was going to go, all he could do was try to hurt me. But at that point, I had, you know, I had my own bank account. I was about to change my phone number. There was just a limited amount of things he could do. Yeah, which was talk crap. Oh, yeah, definitely. So that was super fun, mm-hmm. and I had a great time with all of that. How long and, of course, it, it was a contested for? divorce. Oh, let's mm. see. I filed for divorce in September, and then I, the divorce was finalized that next May. It would have been a lot faster if he could have just signed the paperwork and let it alone, but he had to show up to court. Like, man, you don't have to do any of this. There's not any success for you here. I have a lawyer and you don't. Yeah. And he wanted to, of course, fight about the dumbest things in the universe. Which We had no kids. We had no property. Everything was in my name because I was the only one with a job. Like, there's nothing you can get me on, man. What, are you going to take back the washer and dryer that my family gave us? Is that the hill you're going to die on? Is it really? Yeah. Do you have a pet? It wasn't about the washer and dryer. It was about the inconvenience. The inconvenience. He's going to be on his own. He's going to have to do his own thing. He has to get a job, which Mm -hmm. he's refused to over the last year. You're no longer his... Uh, You're two no longer years, actually. We've been married for the better part of two years at this point. Oh, two years. Oh my. Yeah. He actually didn't have a job when we met. He was living off a very, very small um, military disability check. But when I was like, hey, job, you should get a job. It's good for your mental health. It's good for you to have money. I need you to be out of the house and contributing something. He just wasn't having it because didn't I know how hard life was? Didn't I know how much suffering he'd been through? And I got to tell you about two, three months into the deployment, I was not very sympathetic about that particular line of reasoning. Yes. You could have easily gotten a job at a 
at a convenience store or something, like do something sure. in retail. Like it's not it's not gonna kill you. Exactly. You're acting like it's the hardest thing in the world. Because he didn't want to do it. And he'd found that being unreasonable and whiny really worked for him. The problem is it doesn't work on everyone and it doesn't work forever. No, it doesn't work forever. So would you I would you classify him as a narcissist? For me, it's always been very difficult to differentiate between abuse and narcissism. They share mm. a lot of fundamental traits, and I don't really know where the delineation is, if that makes sense. Um, well, like, I'll give you a little it, bit of a rundown of what a narcissist is. Yeah, yeah. If that's okay. Um, what a Absolutely. narcissist is here, because I've ran into a couple of them over the years. I've been friends right. with them. And it's not the easiest ride, but the way you're discussing your ex, he, he he spends money recklessly and doesn't want to get a job. And it's a disorder in which a person has inflated sense of self-importance. The symptoms are <laughs> grandiosity, callousness unemotional traits, disregard for others' feelings, excessive need for admiration or social isolation. Well, gosh, all those things do describe my ex-husband quite a lot. (laughs) Oh, I forgot to mention, he wouldn't go by his real name because he was afraid the government was going to find him. And this was before all the libertarian, like, preppers were really popular in popular culture. Mm. That wow. one did not make any sense to me. Mm-mm. There you were a couple of things that. that really should have been really serious red flags. But when we got married and I changed my name, which I absolutely regret, I would never do that again. His friends came mm-hmm. up to me and was like, so what's your last name? And I'm like, oh, it's it's this. And... Apparently, it was bad that I had told them because he didn't even tell his actual friends his last name. Man, you got to tell me these things. How was I supposed to know? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What was he, what was the family like? Did they know this behavior? Oh, yes, absolutely. His mom, I think, was in a bad situation. The story, as I was told, which I I can't verify and I'm not going to attempt to, is that his mother's relationship with his father was very abusive. There was a lot of sexual assault within the marriage. And I have no reason to doubt her. And then his father just sort of up and went to a different country, took his sisters, left his brothers and him with his mom. So there's that. But the weird part is his sisters super nice people. I like them very much. One of his brothers, super nice guy, liked him a lot. He had an honest job and he was married and he loved his family. His younger brother, absolutely terrifying. I've only been in a situation a handful of times in my life where my gut says, you have to leave this room and you have to leave now. And I did not stick around long enough to find out why I thought that. Oh my God. So that was so, a fun family. What were you afraid of with the younger brother? I was never super clear. He just felt very, very dangerous. 
And oh. I'd had enough run-ins where I hadn't listened to my gut that I did not want to stick around. Like, I am completely okay with that always being a mystery. Okay. Even even yeah, when he was yeah, in public, though, with other people he was trying to impress, he always was – he's the sort of person where if I knew him now, you would describe him as he's definitely going to be a spree killer at some point. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen, yeah, I've met plenty, I've met some people who are like that too. Like, you mm-hmm. just, you get the vibe from them, like, don't get too close. You just know. Don't say the wrong thing. You just know, and you just like, I'm backing up. Mm-hmm. I'm take this, I'm going to take this stick and just, I'm going to use it for a weapon if I need be. Exactly. Yeah, like, don't be alone yeah, in a room with this person. Like don't be alone in a house with this person. Do not be alone in a car with this person. Mm-hmm. Don't go anywhere with this person where potentially there's no witnesses. Exactly. I was very concerned about that. How did your family feel about your husband's family? Did they get along with them or did they notice the signs too? They never met actually. One of my biggest regrets, no, surprisingly, my my ex-husband worked very hard to separate me from my family. And my right. my mom saw through him immediately, you know, absolutely no question. She's worked in corrections her entire adult life. She she knew who he was as a person. But I was 17 and hard-headed and bored, and he was flattering me with how mature I am. And she knew that if she pushed too hard, I'd just disappear and she'd never see me again. So she had no choice yes. but to allow him into their lives. And... I ran off to Florida and didn't call my mom or anybody in my family for six months because he's whispering in my ear, they don't love you. They don't understand you. They're just trying to separate us. Oh, yeah. So my family, well, okay. I take that back. My parents met his mom and family once. And that was when we all drove up to where he was living with his family. And I took all my stuff back. His mom and aunt, super reasonable about it. I don't think they were very surprised. He took it very poorly, which I kind of get. You know, your spouse is home from Afghanistan, didn't mention anything to you, and is like, yeah, don't don't hug me. I'm leaving just in five minutes. <laughs> so he took it probably as well as could be expected. The fun part of when I got all my stuff is that's when the weird threat started. I had a great time with that one. Bear in mind, the car's in my name. Yep. Not his, my name. So he calls me, I don't pick up the phone. He calls my parents, they don't pick up the phone. And it starts getting to be these weird text messages. Like, if you don't call me in the next 25 minutes, which first of all, that's a weird period of time. And second of all, what are you going to do, make me? Uh-huh. Well, I'm going to call the cops on you. Like, why? It's my car. Well, because your key looks like my little brother's key. <laughs> all right, you do that, buddy. Because he couldn't scare me anymore. <laughs> this guy is too much. He, he, he sounds I like know. That, annoying, that annoying 13-year-old kid that just has to keep calling, 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 calling until you basically say, yes, I'll go on a date with you. It, exactly. My little brother's kid, you couldn't think of anything else better? Well, of well, what was he going to say specifically, better. that he was going to call the cops because his wife ran away? You know, like it's back in the 1800s or something? No. 
Yeah, there was nothing like your could do. And his nonsense, his nonsense wasn't working on me anymore. So he was just throwing things out to see if any of them would stick, and none of them did. Mm -hmm. Jeez, I doubt that would work on any woman. Well, unless the girl would be like, okay, yes. But see, I think it would have worked on me when I was in the relationship because. Being in an abusive relationship is a wildly different world, and it just stops making sense. You kind of go along with everything. I've mentioned before mm-hmm. the arguments we would have where I want something reasonable, then I'm apologizing for his hurt feelings and no clue how I got there. Um, I was always making him mad. I was always doing something incorrectly. It was always this, always that. Here's actually my favorite story about who he is as a person. My platoon leader died my first deployment. He's the one who died in the helicopter crash. And he was very influential on me. He was the first person who really saw the potential that I could be somebody, somebody in the Army anyway. Like people thought that I was, I was going to go far in high school, but the Army was a very different experience. So he was the one mm-hmm. who was suggesting that I take um, NCO development courses and that I do college classes while they're available. And he was just an all-around really cool person, and I respected him very much. He worked really hard. He was acting platoon, platoon leader for, like, his own platoon and our platoon. He was great. Really, really shocking when I found out that he died because I'd seen him that morning, and he'd been on my case to take more classes. Then 10 p.m. that night, my sergeant knocks on my door and says that he's dead. And that, that was really, really shocking. I'd never had somebody just up and die on me like that. And I am right. a mess at this point. I go to the ramp ceremony, which is where somebody's coffin is. It, it's a formal event where someone's coffin is transported mm-hmm. to the plane that will be flying them home. It's very solemn. It's very, um, it's very army, really, because it's a whole bunch of people standing in rows, standing in formation, saluting a coffin. You know, I'd been to plenty of rant ceremonies before to fill out the ranks, but I'd never been to one over somebody I knew. And I'm just standing there, you know, crying. I know other people are crying, but I'm just completely unashamed of it. It's just like ugly crying, you know, because I cared about him very much. And then there was, right. so I, I go back to, you know, I go back to uh, the MWR tents where you can like call people, there's recreation stuff, call him. And I am just grief stricken and he is not helpful in any way I don't really feel like I get I deserve to be told that like it's my fault for being unhappy because all this stuff is happening in my life that was fun right and you know what always just floors me about this situation is the army saved me from him but he's the only reason I ever considered enlisting that was never in my plan so it's like, screwed yourself, buddy. Ha ha. So that was deployment one. Mm. Um, and then when I was, so in Kentucky, you have to wait a year between when you file for, for divorce and when your divorce is actually granted. And my lawyer finagled it. So it started from the start of the deployment, but I'm still technically married, which the army still considers to be actually married. And as a result, you can't start a relationship or anything else with anyone else because you're still legally married. But I was getting to know this other guy and well, I got hit on constantly and he was one of the ones that sort of rose out of the pack as it were. 
And when we got stateside, we started dating, and that went downhill much faster than I was expecting. Because, you know, you think that the truth is when you're immediately out of a violent relationship, you're very vulnerable to getting into another one because, because all of that seems yes. normal. Yes, it is. Yes, and it's it is. not like abusers tell you up front, you know. They don't have signs on their, on their forehead that say, avoid me. So here's this guy who speaks respectfully, I thought, and cares about me as a person, I thought, because I'm getting real tired of being treated as a sex object. It is not fun having conversations with dudes where it's really clear that they only actually see you as a flashlight. Yes. So he waited until I was really, you know, I was really invested in the relationship, and that's when the abuse started. Now, this one, this is the one that actually tried to kill me. My, my husband never turned specifically violent. My ex-boyfriend absolutely did. It was towards the oh. end. We, we both got deployed, our second deployment. I think it was his second. It was definitely my second. And we're mm-hmm. on different bases, which is another saving grace that I did not appreciate at the time. And he starts accusing me of cheating on him. He's like, okay, I'm not, but cool. He has, I let him have remote access to my computer because he was really good at fixing things. And he kept wanting to read my diary and I was just not going to let him do that. It was fight after fight, after fight, after fight. And I came home and I was with him for all of a couple of hours and I decided I can't, I can't do this. I don't love him. I'm not safe here. So I broke up with him. And I regret this to this day. I'm frankly shocked that I'm still alive. He said, hey, why don't we talk it out? And I'm still trying to be like, cool. You know, I'm trying to be cool about everything and not be a, not make everything a big deal. So he takes my car keys. We go on a drive, immediately takes my phone. All of my friends know what's happening. So they're all very concerned takes my phone we start fighting he starts to run my car off the road like okay i'm gonna die in this car (laughs) yeah i finally convinced him to drop me off at the barracks and i had already talked to a couple of people hey can you help me get my stuff but i call another one of my friends who is terrifying he's a terrifying person he used to he's very intense amazing person completely moral used to be in the infantry super scary called him said hey my ex put his hands on me will you help me move he was there in 10 minutes you know so we all drive to the apartment that my ex and i are technically sharing and he's not answering his phone i can't get hold of the landlord i don't have a key i'm not actually living there finally i get hold of him Mm -hmm. he comes back he is just dead silent, not saying anything to anybody. He walks into the apartment. I walk into the apartment. My friends are right behind me. He locks me in. And this is another moment like, I'm going to die here. I'm going to die. I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to get away. As soon as I move, he starts beating on the door. And that's a very clear, if you don't stop, I'm going to beat you. And there, he was just way too escalated for me to be able to de-escalate the situation. And I'm very lucky because my scary friend kicked out a bunch of doors in Iraq and he kicked out the door. Also, it's super fun watching a staff sergeant yell at people because there's this particular army yell where it just commands attention, but it's not actually angry. Mm. 
So we got. How like, long did this go on for? Sorry, go ahead. I think I was, I was the relationship or this particular incident. Um, this particular incident. I don't think I was trapped in the apartment for more than a minute. Because really, once you see oh, that kind okay. of issue and you have a solution to it, you can't afford to wait around. You know, that's that's military training for you. Right. So we got my stuff, left, thought everything was okay. My acting first sergeant found out, did not want to talk to him about this. But I get called into the office Monday morning, and he's talking about, are you okay? Do you want to, you need to file a restraining order? And it's like, we've talked before, we've interacted before. And I know for a fact you don't give a fuck about me. You've only ever been a problem in my life. And now you're acting like any of this fucking matters. Why? So you can look good? Is that what's going on here? So I didn't feel great about that, but I did get a restraining order, which was, fun fact, my 22nd birthday gift to myself. (laughs) It was a very bad birthday. Mm-hmm. I'll say. Oh. Yeah, I know. And then a little bit later, uh, I hear from my sergeant, hey, you need to go talk to your ex's first sergeant. I'm like, don't want to do that, but okay, it turns out I have to. And that was an extremely stressful conversation because he's trying to protect his soldiers, fine, whatever. Maybe you should have done something ahead of time or previously because the whole conversation with this first sergeant and bear in mind I'm a specialist so I'm an E4 he is a first yeah. sergeant which is uh, I'm going to get this wrong and the internet is going to make fun of me but he's a first sergeant which is much much higher than that and you're not really supposed to talk back to people in higher ranks than you and this whole conversation is about so why did your friend kick out the door? Like, cause he thought I was going to get murdered. Well, why didn't he call the cops? Because he thought I was going to get murdered. So I'm yeah. having to listen to this conversation. That's all about, I did the wrong thing somehow. And it was completely unreasonable for my friend who's done all these infantry deployments to not solve the problem. And it was so hard having to sit there and be quiet and just be stewing in this rage knowing that there's nothing I can say that will do any good because he's not exactly threatening me or anything. He's not saying that I did something wrong and he's going to be liaising with my first sergeant. He's just kind of low key implying that I'm an idiot. It's a little unclear. Like I don't really have want to have a conversation about how I and the people who care about me reacted in a crisis situation when we're all in the army And you react to crises with violence. That's the whole point. So maybe, hear me out, maybe you get a handle on the people in your command. Maybe you consider doing something about this guy that tried to kill his ex-girlfriend. Why am I here? When it should be you talking to the man that tried to kill her. Exactly. Exactly. That is that is that is ridiculous. I wish you could see. I don't see why I had to talk to him at all. Frankly, I'm just. I am. Oh, oh. Yeah, it was a weird, like five, six years. Five, five years. Right. And they still didn't do anything about this. Nope. Five years. I also. I also hadn't pursued it in court. I got my restraining order. I got my 
well, my 30-day temporary protective order. And then I just didn't want to deal with it at that point. I didn't really want Mm -hmm. to fight it out in court. I didn't really want to have to talk to anybody in my or his command ever again. So it was worth it to me just to let the whole thing lapse and just try to move on with my life. Because at that point, oh, man, I can't remember if I was about to finish out my contract or if I had just finished out my contract. I want to say I hadn't quite left the Army I might be wrong about that. But in either case, I'm about to be done with the Army. I'm not reenlisting. I'm going home. I just want all this to be over, you know. And I I regret it to this day because I had witnesses. People knew what was there. But I knew how wretched a trial was going to be. And I just was like, fine. I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I just want to move on with my life. Were there any other women that were going through what you were going through? Honestly, I don't know. Um, There's this weird culture of masculinity in the Army that – so you don't fit in because you're a woman. And there are people in the Army who hate women soldiers, males in the Army who hate female soldiers. And there are males in the Army who hate women. And they're really in a way that I was just – I didn't know how to deal with it. Not even a little bit. But there's also this low-key idea of, so if I disagree with you enough, are you going to, like, kill me or rape me? Like, what's the plan here? I don't really want to find out. Right. And femininity is of, like, any amount of femininity, which is a moving goalpost, by the way. It really just is anything that a dude doesn't like that you're doing. (laughs) Femininity is a very, very bad thing, and... I found pretty quickly that the best way for me to be left alone as much as possible was to be hyper-masculine and hyper-aggressive. And there's all of these very, very bad things that are sort of percolating about women. And at the time, I wanted to be one of the boys for really self-protective reasons. I wish I'd had more girlfriends because it's so lonely. But I was so invested in basic survival that I didn't really see the bigger picture. So... I'm 100% sure that there were other women in my unit that this was happening to, but I don't know for sure because I just didn't have any female friends. My first deployment, I was the only female soldier in my 140-man company. Or sorry, 120-man company. My second deployment, I was one of seven in a 340-man company. Mm -hmm. So there just weren't a whole lot of people that, a lot of other women that I could have talked to about this. It's very yeah, isolating. That is, mm-hmm. Even just for really practical reasons, you know, sometimes you need to talk about the female body, for example, and guys right. do not get it even a little bit. And those are the decent ones who don't have a panic attack about it. Every yeah, time, or over-sexualize it. Oh, it's the worst. The over-sexualization was exhausting. Like, don't – I'm smiling because I'm at work. Okay, going to stop doing that. I don't really want to be hit on right now or ever. The part that I always thought was really interesting is the way that people treated me about just everything. It was real weird watching how people spoke about me. I, um, I used to have long hair. It was down to about my um, – down to about my elbows. And then – During Christmas leave, right before my second deployment, I cut it off. So I had a very short haircut that uh, made me me look a little bit like a 12-year-old boy. 
I was informed. <laughs> there were so many people in my company. I didn't know half of them. And when I cut my hair off, came back to work, all these dudes are coming to see like, what did you do to your head? I'm like, who are you? Why are we talking? Have we ever spoken right? before ever? Or here's my favorite. They wouldn't come and say this to my face. Yeah, like, I don't comment on your life. Get out of my face. Here's another fun one. Really enjoyed this. No one ever said this to me, but they said it to my friends who passed it on because I I really did want to know who thought this way. There were a couple of dudes who started the deployment. Patterson's so ugly with that short hair. I wouldn't fuck her with somebody else's dick. And then about six months in, oh, my God, Patterson is so so hot. Have you seen how hot she is? Like, I know what kind of oh, person you are. My. So the army was exhausting all the time. Yeah. It, it. A big part of my re- recovery process when I left the army and started going to therapy was about how to have relationships again. Because it is hard learning to be a civilian. It's hard on all of us. There's a year you come back, you're a civilian, and you're angry at the universe because nobody's acting the way they should act, the way that you're used to people caring. It's, it's just stressful. You know, it takes, what, 13 weeks to turn me into a soldier, and I get a four-day briefing on how to be a civilian? Cool. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So I, I left the Army, went to college, had a meltdown, was not acknowledging how bad everything was and started going to therapy. And the first push of therapy was about how to have relationships again, how to interact with other humans, how to be around males especially and and find a way to trust them because I didn't. I mean, how could I? The people who had taken the best care of me were male, but so were the people who had hurt me the most. And you don't ever know for sure which one's which. Because I had plenty of people that were good friends, very valuable to me, until they asked me out and I turned them down. And losing a friend is the best case scenario there. The worst case scenario is a whole bunch of rumors that are impacting my ability to do my job. And it's, it's hard coming back and trying to figure out how to trust again when you know how awful people are capable of being. Yes. You're basically watching your back every step of the way because they can be mm-hmm. nice one minute, but then the next you could have a knife put into you. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't help that one of the more common um, – PTSD symptoms for people who have been in a war zone is hypervigilance. Yep. So I am constantly on the lookout. So, you know, I did, I did the war where hypervigilance is encouraged, and I've also been, you know, raped and almost murdered, which is another thing that encourages hypervigilance. And, man, it was hard to give that up. It was I, – I fought that one really hard in therapy. Because you start therapy and you have coping mechanisms, and they're bad ones, and they're stressful, but they're useful to you at the time. And then you end therapy, and you have better coping mechanisms, and you're more at at peace with your place in the universe. But in the center, you're hanging on to your old ones because you don't have a good grasp on the new ones, and it's very hard to bridge that gap. 
I did not want to give up the hypervigilance. I did not want to give up the aggressive body language, but I had to, to make a life that was worth living. How long did this take? It's still going on now. Oh. But have it you was, seen a change in your hypervigilance? Yes, absolutely. All of the therapy I've done has been very, very worthwhile to me. But the disease itself or the disorder itself is very stressful. So, of course, I have PTSD, and along with that comes the depression and the anxiety. And mm-hmm. different facets have been more prominent at different times. Start of college, the PTSD was the worst. And then that was the first thing that I worked on. So I got a grasp on the PTSD itself fairly quickly. But then I was still in college, and I was struggling with college just because, you know, college is – kind of hard compared to high school and the anxiety really really came out got a handle on that and then it was the depression and the depression's actually been the worst because it it comes on without you really realizing it you know you can get very 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 depressed without really knowing that it's happening so there came a point where I realized that it was so hard to function in even really super basic ways and it was not getting better. And I didn't really have anyone around who could really help me through the process. You know, mental, uh, this depression, anxiety runs in my family, but I suspect that mine is probably the worst. And none of my other family members, I'm the first person in three generations of my family to go to war. And I always wonder if I was male and I came back and I was like this, would you have treated me differently? Because, you know, war changes a man. Mm-hmm. When I first came back, it was clear that what my parents wanted was a more mature version of who I was at 17. And what they got was this angry stranger. And no one really knew how to handle it. I was doing the best I could, but I couldn't stand being touched It was hard for me to be in loud environments or environments with too many people. I was very, very, very aggressive, and I had not rehabilitated my sense of humor. The Army's sense of humor is brutal, and it works really well in context, but it does not transfer. It's very isolating. So when I started getting really sick, I was still navigating the VA system, trying to figure out how everything worked. And it's a frustrating system, and I suspect it always will be. But also, it's just very hard to do things when you have no energy. There came a point where I ended up being hospitalized for a week because it turns out when you call the nurse advice line and you're crying and you can't stop, they get worried about you. So they convinced me to come to the the VA hospital, talk to someone at – they have sort of, I guess, on-call mental health professionals available talk to somebody there and they're like do you want to maybe go up to the unit and see what we can do I'm like yeah yeah let's do that which is crazy right mm-hmm. because you know I'm in this I'm in this locked facility you can't just waltz out against medical advice of course but the doors don't lock obviously and I am the only woman on this unit and it was I was so sick that the idea of being in a situation where I couldn't protect myself was less stressful than the idea of living as I was living. 
the week in the inpatient facility was primarily about stabilization. It's not a long-term treatment facility. They try to get you in and out as quickly as possible. It's not considered ideal to be treated inpatient, but it did get me mm-hmm. into general mental health much more quickly. There's always a backlog. There's never enough people. There's never enough therapists. There's never enough psychiatrists. Started trying to find antidepressants that worked. Still haven't found one. But what really worked for me was doing a, doing a six-month DBT course. Partially, I think, because I had to leave the house every week. So it was really helpful on that end. And that brings us to today, where things are better in a lot of ways. They're still not where I want them to be. But I'm better than I was last year. I'm better than I was the year before that. A lot of things are hard. I'm still tired all the time. I'm still... I can still be pretty emotional and not have a, I'm not great at keeping a handle on it, but it's better. And I just have to trust that it'll keep improving if I keep working at it. That's good. Now it's you're really easy to lose a... faith in the system. Oh. Sorry, well, I, I cut you off. Go ahead. About that. Well, you can't complain about that. We're losing faith in the system every other day. And right. it, it just it it's, keeps getting worse and worse. Um, it's more about the disorder in this particular case than it is about anything else. The VA is a frustrating system, but it's frustrating for all of us. It's more about being so depressed. Is just really It's hard to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard to see that the effort that I'm making, which is so substantial, feels so substantial, is worth anything in the long run because recovery does take a really long time. Mm-hmm. But I'm Can't sorry, I cut you off. Come overnight. <laughs> um, well, you can't expect it like just to work quickly. <laughs> I know. It was very frustrating. Why can't it work now? Takes time. Takes time. Exactly. Okay. You said you were a volunteer at mm-hmm. local. I volunteered with uh, the YWCA, which works with domestic violence survivors and rape victims. The way that I found out about this is they they had organized a day on campus. I believe this was before the mattress carry. This was maybe like a year before. Time sort of blurs together at some point. Um, but they had they had come to campus, they had some speakers, and then they opened the floor like, hey, does anybody want to talk about what happened to them? I'm like, me, I want to do that. There's something very powerful about, I think, being able to name what happened to you and bringing it out because there's so much shame associated with victimization, which is bizarre mm-hmm. to me. Like, I'm sorry, something bad happened to me and I'm supposed to be ashamed of it? All right. And, but I, I stood up in front of all of these people and I talked about what had happened to me. At the time, I was still struggling with calling what my ex-husband did to me rape, he said yes. And being able to, to put words to it was very helpful. But also, I'm a pretty good public speaker. So the woman who organized it uh, approached me afterwards and said, hey, you know, we're always looking for volunteers. You're pretty good at this public speaking thing. You can be able to talk to people about what it's like from the inside. I'm like, sign me up. But, of course, there's a limited number of times that you can do public speaking. It's a big event. So in addition to that, they make you do uh, 
three, maybe two and a half days of training. And they were talking about all sorts of things that they did. They worked with the temporary protective office, helping people get restraining orders. They have, uh, they have beds for people fleeing from domestic violence. But what really caught my eye was working with the sexual assault response team. And what that is, is in the, the county I live in and two adjacent counties, if someone is the victim of sexual assault and they make a formal report, they don't go to the hospital. They come to the YWCA. They have dedicated facilities. It's much quieter, you know, and in the room, it's the uh, forensic nurse, the victim, and myself. And my job was just kind of to be there for them, which, man, that is just real hard to do sometimes because you want to help people feel better, but there's a limited amount of better that they can feel. You want to be able to distract people, but you can't afford to be glib about it. So, and these rape kits take about three hours. So I would come home just really thoughtful and very, very tired, but feeling like I'd done something that made a difference, you know, that I had put something out into the world that was valuable. I really enjoyed right. every time I did it, actually. I mean, some, some of them were just very, very brutal. The worst one for me was there was a, there's a teenage girl. I want to say she was 16 or 17. And her first time having sex was being sexually assaulted. And usually what happens is victims are very calm during the whole rape, uh, rape test procedure, which is, as I'm sure you would assume, extremely invasive. And then towards the end, that's when people start breaking down because you've gotten through everything and you're about to go home so you can start having feelings. And she broke down and she started crying and she said, you know, is it always going to hurt like this? And the nurse and I were like, no, 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 no. But it broke my heart. You know, here's this poor child and she doesn't deserve any of this. And it is so awful that she has to go through this, that any of us have to go through this. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And was it like this with every other um, victim that you come across? Mm, No, everybody responds a little bit differently because people value different things. So you can approach them in different ways. I went out to a hospital once. I'm not sure why we went to the hospital. I think the SART nurse wasn't available. And I'm with, I'm speaking to the victim who's a young woman in her 20s with her husband and she had been sexually assaulted by one of her husband's friends. And she was just distraught about this because she had waited until she got married to have sex with her husband and she'd never had sex with anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. So she had succeeded in this thing that is very, very hard to do. And that was very, very valuable to her that was destroyed because because her husband made the mistake of letting a monster into their house. And of course he didn't know that, you know, would you allow someone into your house that you thought was going to assault someone you cared about? It came as a surprise to him too. No. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I pulled him aside as well and talked about like, listen, she's going to be hurting really bad right now, but so are you. This is hard for you too. And you deserve support. Just because she's suffering doesn't mean you're not also suffering, but you need, you 
need to be able to talk to somebody that isn't her about this. Right. Wow. Right. What a sicko. Yeah. She went on. Yeah, it's kind of hard to follow a very deep story like that. She went on for that long. She waited until marriage succeeded Mm -hmm. and only to just be taken away. That is just awful. Right. And. Now, when so, see, they go you know, through the recovery, before, or sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, after the recovery process, which is pretty extensive, do they keep in contact mm-hmm. with you? No. Once the night was over, my job was also over. I didn't follow up with anybody. Um, that actually got sent to one of the wise actual employees. So they were the ones who would follow uh. up on, you know, if if you were able to, to make a claim from, oh man, I forget what it's called. Georgia has a, a fund essentially for people who have been the victims of violent crime. So if that was something that you could consider, they would follow up with that. They ran a lot of therapy. Um, but whether, so um, my coordinator would, would follow up with them the next day or the day after, and they would you know, help them liaise with the police. But if the victim didn't want any more information, we wouldn't follow up with her at all, you know. And I say her mm-hmm. because I never worked with a male victim in these in this situation. And there just weren't a whole lot that ended up in our facility. My coordinator said they get maybe four a year. And I want to say we were called out something between like 150 and 200 times a year. That's how many times people were, were using our facilities. Don't quote me on that. It's been a while. Okay. So when I say she as the victim, that was, those were, I've only ever worked with victims in this particular capacity. Of course, I don't want to imply that male victims don't exist because of course they do, but I've never had a chance to work with one. Right. And when you, when you would, when it comes, Will you treat them the same way that you treat the women who have been victims of of this? Absolutely. (laughs) I hate that you had to ask that, but I totally get where you're coming from. And I have a lot of complicated feelings on it too, because a lot of, a lot of my abusers have used the rhetoric of survivors as a way to, to strengthen their own points. And they're, sometimes it's hard to be compassionate when I know that people lie about it. I've never, I have never thought that. And I hate feeling that way. You know, I want to believe everyone unconditionally. I want to support people conditionally, but in the back of my head, it's always like, how sure are you that this male friend, that this male in your life is being truthful with you? But all I can do is when it's presented to me, I treat it as truthful. It's not my job to figure out if they're lying to me. It's not my job to figure out what really happened. All I can do is be there for people. Everything else is out of my control. 
It's very complicated. It's a stressful, uh, it's a very stressful field to be in. It is. Okay. With what you have learned from your own experiences and with the experience of others, where do you see into the future? My long-term goal is to be a licensed clinical social worker, but a lot of that depends on me getting healthy enough that I can return to college. So that's what I'm working on right now is that particular pathway. Once I discovered the field of psychology, it just gripped me. It's like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And of course, therapists specialize, you know, uh, licensed clinical social workers specialize. Some people specialize in addiction. Some people specialize in personality disorders. I want to specialize in trauma, which is a bit of a niche field because you have to genuinely care about people and their, their successes to general, general, genuinely, I'm so sorry, matter to you, but you also can't get too attached. And that's a very, very difficult thing to try to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm fascinated by all the research. I spent every time I could write a paper in college about combat PTSD, that was what I was writing on. So I was researching uh, virtual reality exposure to therapy. I was researching EMDR. I was researching um, MDMA being used to treat PTSD in a clinical setting. It's like, give me all that research. I want all of it. You would just load up on it. Absolutely. I've written papers for fun. I hated so much that was allegedly a book for victims of domestic violence written by either a charlatan or the dumbest person I've ever heard of. And I hated this book so much and everything that it said and everything that it represented that I wrote a five-page paper that required about 200 pages of citations or of research, I should say, that I was reading. That's how much I hated this book. Oh, my gosh. Right? What was in it? Do you remember some of the information? Um, What was the title? The title was called The Verbally Abusive Man. I would not recommend anyone pick up this book. I would recommend they pick up any book but this. It's incredibly victim-blamey. The author is very sympathetic to abusers, but weirdly not at all sympathetic to victims. Um, a lot of the advice she gives is just plain dangerous, that you should confront your abuser frequently, that you can change a man through nagging. That's being very glib, but that's really the impression that you get. It's like the things that you're saying are dangerous. The things that you're saying are going to get someone murdered, and you are responsible for this. I'd love to meet the author, oh, honestly. My. I super want to know, like, please, how did any of this happen? Good freaking grief. Okay, do you remember, right. the, do you remember the name of the author at all? I'm not going to pick this book up, but if I ever come across it, I'm just going to be like, I'm going to buy it and burn it. Did you, right. Do you remember? I don't remember the author's name. I don't have my computer with me. The book was called The Verbally Abusive Man, and she's written several other books along the same vein. Oh, Jeez. Oh. Right. Are you serious? And she she hasn't been in the news for a lawsuit yet? Well, I haven't really followed up on her. The book that I was critiquing was written in 2006. So it was um, it was a fairly old book, even by the time I picked it up. 
and it's possible she's just fallen off the radar. The last time I checked her website, she uh, described herself as essentially the person who brought the concept of verbal abuse into American mainstream culture. I'm like, I don't feel like that's right. I don't know about that. I picked it up at a secondhand bookstore and just, that was supposed to be my summer reading. We were going to the beach. It was terrible. Should have just picked up American Gods and been done with it. Jeez. Why in the right. world would anybody recommend this? I looked up the name. The Verbally Abusive Man Can He Change? A Woman's Guide to Deciding Whether to Stay or Go. It's by Patricia Evans. Go. You go. You always go, darling. That's the only way to protect yourself. Yes, it's the only way to protect yourself. I'm not going to even even put this on my Kindle because it, 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 judging by what you were telling me by the first chapter, I will just be – I won't have a phone. You're not going to like it. It's an no. interesting read if you can sort of step away from the advice itself, which I had a hard time with. The moral of today's story is – if you are writing something as an expert in a field, you have to be very cautious about what you say. Because if people yeah. start listening to you, then you are responsible for what your your beliefs and your writing has done to the world. Yeah. All of this book was completely wrong. We know that the only way victims can prevent violence done to them is by physically removing themselves from their abusers. There is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can do that will make an abuser stop abusing because they don't care about you like that. My ex-husband said that he loved me and I suppose that he had a feeling that he thought was love, but I don't love my car. I don't love my toaster. I don't love things that I own. I don't love things that are my property. I love my friends, I love my cat, I love my family because they're autonomous from me. They're able to engage with me. Make sense? To him, all I was was a possession. You can't love possessions. Mm -mm. And that's another trait of a narcissist. They only view people as possessions or pawns to use. Right? It's a very lonely yeah. life, honestly. And the unfortunate thing life. is concept of abuse, the mindset that you have to have is so foreign to me, to most people, because I can't imagine wanting something badly enough that I would hurt somebody else to get it. You know, there have to be really, really specific reasons that I would do things specifically to harm people. I just can't imagine doing it for fun or for profit. And if you think that way, which most people do, then you're not going to have a really easy time understanding or trying to rehabilitate abusers because they don't care about that kind of thing. They like the things that come with abuse. They like the lack of accountability. They like, in my husband's case, I did all the chores on top of working. I didn't hold him accountable to anything. I was having sex with him more or less when he wanted. It wasn't great sex, mind you, but that wasn't what he was looking for, was it? (laughs) And to get someone to change, you have to say, you have to give up all these things you value in exchange for something that you don't care about. And then we're surprised that abusers don't change. Yes, because in retrospect, that would be considered abuse to them. Right. They're very sensitive about that kind of thing. 
Uh-huh. Don't you understand that the world owes me and my life has been so hard? Yeah, man, it's hard for all of us. Yeah. But we kick and scream at something until we can no longer do it. We don't go out and we physically harm somebody. Exactly. I don't feel better when I make other people feel worse. I don't want right. to get things if it means that I hurt people. But if I didn't care about those things, then, man, I could make my life a lot easier. Yes, it would. But, no, we ain't like, you ain't like that at all. Him, unfortunately, I have a feeling he will live a very lonely life. Who The poor soul who gets involved with him, and if he has children, oh, God, look after those babies, please. Right. And make make them See, not the weird like part him. is, as far as abusers go, he wasn't, like, great at it. I managed to escape, and so did a bunch of his exes. You know, one of the mm. things that actually kept me in the relationship was realizing that if I left him, he was free to victimize someone else, and I felt responsible for that. Because if he was abusing me, he couldn't abuse other people. The problem mm-hmm. is you can't live your life that way. But it's very hard to not feel bad about that. I don't want other people to be hurt, but I can't sacrifice myself on that altar. Not, But it's not helping you see that you matter in this too. Yeah. I can't set myself on fire to keep someone else warm. Yeah. Because same thing he did to you, he's going to do another person, but you have to save Mm -hmm. yourself first. And when he comes across that person, you could warn them about what it's what happened with you i've never had the opportunity i don't know where he is now actually i changed my phone number immediately upon getting divorced and have not looked for him since gotta tell you life is way better without him in my life i was actually going to ask one of those questions if you ever ran (laughs) into him and if you had what would happen i was going to ask did you did you pepper spray him did you kick him in the the nuts (laughs) something (laughs) I'm not a particularly violent person by nature, army, you know, army at all. I really don't want to get into a fight, but I can yell with the best of them. And I'm really good about finding the things you don't like about you. If you are very good at yelling and you have the right tone, people will just stop interrupting you. It's fascinating. But no, I haven't ever bumped into actually either of my exes anywhere. I always am Sometimes I'll go to conventions because we met at a convention and I go to other conventions as well. And I'll see someone who looks like him from behind. And there's just that moment of pure, it's not really terror, but it's not really fury either. It's a very weird feeling. It's dread and anger. And then I'll realize that it's not him. It's somebody else. But then, you know, that's my afternoon shot. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing about abusers. They ruin everything. Even when he's not there, there's this part of him that's still affecting me so much. I mean, it affects me in other ways as well. That's just a really easy one to, to make an example of. I'm always concerned I'm going to see him and it's like, nope, you are not staying here. I deserve this place more than you. I will fight you about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For someone who talked a big game, he really could not stand up to any kind of direct criticism. So I can't imagine it would be that hard to run him off. 
Not with his rhetoric. <laughs> Said before, he sounds like a 13-year-old boy. I know. <laughs> Like good, and that's why it was so hard to explain what was wrong because it sounds insane. None of these things sound like things that a normal human would say to another person. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. explain to people how my life has turned into this bizarre, like acid trip nightmare, and I just I can't because I don't have the words to explain it. I didn't really have the words to explain it until I read Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend. But he really, Bancroft really puts into words how abusers think and the strategies that they use. And I read this book and it's like, I'm not crazy. This was a tactic. It was very um, vindicating. It was very vindicating. Wow. Oh, my goodness. How this has been, this has been very eye-opening. We are only on episode three, and part two of episode three, and oh, my goodness, I have been hearing stories left and right from my other callers mm-hmm. who have come on to share their stories. Every last one of them left me speechless. This one. Right? Because I don't have a lot of information what goes on in the Army. I've only heard stories, and you're the first person to come on with this story. And delving with two domestic violent relationships, you are strong. Mm -hmm. It almost was like you were in a Lifetime movie. (laughs) Oh, God, please, I hope not. Part of the reason that I do talk about this is because I was very invested in the view of morality that the Army teaches. It's a, it's a really specific view on ethics that I really appreciated. I appreciated the valorization of suffering. I appreciated that you're not the most important thing. You're part of a group. And that's as a result, this group of people don't have to like anybody about this are capable of doing really incredible feats. Your view on war aside, you're certainly welcome to argue whether, you know, the army uses good tactics or whether the wars are justified. But on the ground, I really bought into the ethics. And it was very, very hard for me to believe so strongly in this ideal and see firsthand that I wasn't permitted to be part of it. And I wanted, I want to be able to be part of it. I want to feel ownership of my service the way that my male friends do, instead of feeling like I was some other trapped in this situation. But the thing about the military in general is that once you're in, you're in. You can't do too much about it, and it really is just luck of the draw. I have a very close friend who was in the Air Force. She loves the Air Force. She's had nothing but great experiences. She has never felt threatened the way that I have. You could not possibly get two people who have more wildly different experiences than her and me. And I'm so jealous of her. I'm so jealous. That could have been me. (laughs) Could have gotten the good things about the Army instead of only the bad ones. Right. 
but your your experience came with lessons and it will help other people who are in the situation, especially within the army, to speak out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least the military is finally treating sexual assault more seriously. I think, mm-hmm. you know, at some point people make enough noise and everyone's like, what do you mean that's a problem? That's ridiculous. Make it not be a problem. Oh, my. Well, our time is just about up. Um, what is your advice to anyone who will listen to this episode or is listening right now? Be aware of the way that monsters will try to hijack how you think. When you start thinking that you deserve what's happening to you, that's where it becomes very hard to get out. And there is no amount of love that is worth being treated this way. It is better to be alone than it is to be with someone who diminishes you. Always. Well said. Story matters, and you deserve so much more than someone who treats you like you are blessed. Thank you. It's been much better since then. I'm glad. I would like to thank you, Heather, for coming on and being brave enough to tell your story and letting us know about what you do and how you survived two of these relationships and what you went through in the Army. I thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Hope to have you on again sometime. And everybody, part three will be coming out soon. And we're going into the month of February. We'll have a new segment on Black Lives Matter. Also, Black History Month. And everybody, please send out your prayers for Jesse Smollett. He was attacked, like I said, in, my, in the earlier of part of the episode. He was attacked today. So please send your love and prayers to him. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone. Peace.